Over the course of the retreat, we've been talking about the paramis, or the forces of purity in the mind. When the mind is free of attachment, aversion, delusion, we call this the pure mind. And they're also called the forces of perfection, because the peak, we would say, of human perfection would be the development and maturing of, the, uh, of these qualities of mind. And we can see that these qualities, or these paramis, are the qualities of a good human being, worldwide. Any culture, any religion, any society, people who are generous, loving, patient, understanding, generous, they're they're recognized as good human beings. And we can see in these qualities that there's nothing particularly Buddhist about them. They're not esoteric. They're not very exotic. They're not vague. They're not remote. They're ever-present in our lives, in our minds, in our communities. But we can see that they are, in some ways, the, the kind of the way good people are in their families, in their communities, with one another. And we see that we all have experienced all of them. We all have some degree and some capacity to be generous, to be loving, to be patient, to be understanding. So we, can, we know that the, these qualities are inherent in the mind. They lie as a potential. They reside as a potential in the mind that can be developed. But to move the paramis from a potential in the mind to an active, developed, mature quality of mind, we have to value them. We have to look at them and choose them as our personal value. And in doing so, we then raise the profile of these qualities of mind in our heart. They, they, they come up on our to-do list, so to speak, to practice generosity, practice patience, to practice loving-kindness. Because when we value something, it comes to our mind more, more often when you value someone. They come to mind, they come to your heart more often. When you value some behavior, some activity, it comes to mind. So when we make any of these qualities, any or all of these qualities of mind a personal choice, then it raises their profile in our mind and we, we see the opportunity to develop them more often. But it takes practice. We can value what we know is a potential within our heart. And we can appreciate it. And we can appreciate it in others. But to see it develop in our own life takes practice. And all of these practices, all of these qualities of mind, to develop them requires mindfulness. They're all mindfulness practices. Because mindfulness is, as we have been practicing, it's the ability to recognize the present moment. The ability to recognize the present moment's need for or uh, requirement for patience, generosity, love, understanding. And if we're not paying attention to the present moment, we're not going to see the need. We're not going to see the opportunity. We're going to be living in oblivious to the opportunity to develop further the paramis in our heart. There are also all practices of renunciation. Kamala mentioned last night that all of the paramis are practice of letting go. Letting go of attachment itself, generosity, letting go of our self-centric, obsessive 
unconscious behaviors, morality, letting go of things, behaviors, beliefs, our sense of self in renunciation. Wisdom is letting go of naivete, delusion, and the list goes on. They're all about letting go of some unwholesome, destructive, uh, kind of, well, conditioned um, misbehavior of mind in body and speech. They are also all practices of one or more of the Noble Eightfold Path factors. Generosity is the practice of right action. Morality is the action of, is the practice of right speech, right action, right livelihood. Equanimity is the practice of right view. Loving kindness is the practice of right thought. Resolve is the practice of right speech, action, view, and thought. Patience is the practice of right sila. To develop the paramis is to develop the Eightfold Noble Path. And finally, while all of these paramis are mindfulness practices, letting go practices, or renunciation, Eightfold Path factors, they're all practices that lead to happiness. They all cultivate joy and happiness in our life as we practice them and as a kind of foundation of well-being, really, in our life, even in the face of the inevitable, challenging changes that we all do or will face. Several retreats ago, one yogi at the end of the retreat said, I want a life of awareness. I don't want a lifestyle of retreat. We get we don't want to live in silence, scheduled, routine, regimented, uh, sitting for so many hours. That's not the goal. The goal is awareness, to live a life of awareness. The paramis are the householder's practices that lay the foundation for liberation. In Burma and elsewhere, it's understood the degree of liberation in the mind is directly proportional to the development of the paramis. We can practice all of the paramis every day in our, well, domestic, civic, professional activities. Is there ever a day go by you don't have the need for a little more patience, a little more understanding, a little more honesty, a little more care in speaking and acting in relationship to others. The development of the paramis is not about primarily sitting on the cushion with your eyes closed. It's about the everyday give and take human interaction of living life. And if we choose to raise the profile of these practices, in our life, in our heart, in our mind, we have every opportunity. In Burma, the understanding is, this is the practice of householders. Really make an active practice of cultivating these paramis. And every year, go on a long retreat. If you can get two weeks, great. If you can get a month, great. If you can get two months, fantastic. And many do take their summer break, you know, their month during the hot season or six weeks during the hot season when everything shuts down, they go to the monastery, go to the meditation center. And progressively you can see year after year the paramis develop and the insight deepens and the degree of liberation opens, the heart just opens more and more. So while you may not see a great significant shift in liberation on a seven-day retreat. If you practice the paramis for a year and you come back and do another seven-day or seven-week retreat, you'll see a difference. And if you do that every year for the remainder, we can see the trajectory. Extrapolate seven days of practice into seven years. 
or if you start young, as some of you are, seven decades. And we can see the transformation that is possible uh, in the mind. When I say the paramis, or the development of paramis, are the foundation for liberating insight, development of wisdom, it's fair to ask, what insight, what wisdom? Wisdom is one of the paramis. What is the perfection of wisdom? What degree of purifying the mind of delusion is possible? And that's what I want to speak about tonight. Wisdom power. When we look at the Noble Eightfold Path, there are these eight factors. There are the wisdom factors of right view and right thought, or right intention. There are the morality factors of right speech, right action, right livelihood, and there are the concentration or samadhi, stability of mind factors of right effort, right mindfulness, right concentration. The wisdom factors are two, right view and right thought. Well, the Buddha, as you know, was pretty thorough. Right view <laughs> has two main elements that I want to speak about tonight understanding the law of karma and the development of insight. Right thought, we've, we've been speaking about without actually identifying them throughout the retreat. The right, thought are, the right thoughts are renunciation, loving kindness, and compassion. All of our talks, a lot of our instruction has been around renunciation, letting go of loving-kindness, and compassion. So when we speak about right view, the first right view to hear about, to have some understanding of, and to see in operation in our lives is the, the right view of karma. Karma is action. Karma is intention. Karma, we know, we all know the law of karma generally is, you know, be careful what you do, it's coming back. You know, what goes around comes around. You spread it around, you're going to get it back. It's something like that. If we speak and act with a careless or an unwholesome quality of mind, the law of karma tells us that the result as we experience it, is going to be unpleasant. It's going to be unpleasant in the moment, and it's going to be unpleasant in future moments that are conditioned by the intention of that thought or the intention of that action. If, on the other hand, we watch our intentions, we're very careful, and we speak and act from a wholesome state of mind where there's compassion and understanding and generosity, in the mind, if that's the motivation, if that's the fuel for our speaking and acting, the law of karma tells us the result will be experienced in the mind as pleasant. It doesn't say tit for tat. It doesn't say when. It doesn't say just how, but just that it will be pleasant. We don't have to look very far. When you do, when you, when you do the simplest act of generosity, give a dog a bone. You're being generous. You're, you're, you're sharing something with a dog. The dog feels great, and so do you. There it is, pleasant feeling in the mind. You don't have to wait for next lifetime. or it's not, it's not that mysterious. It's just pretty obvious if you're paying attention. When you choose to speak more carefully to someone that you're having a little bit of friction with, while it may be an effort, and it may exercise a lot of, need a lot of restraint at the end of the conversation, you're going to feel better if you're careful 
than if you let it just escalate based on carelessness. You don't have to wait. There's no mystery to it. There's no magic. There's no karma master in the sky waiting to punish you. It's not about punishment. It's about seeing the lawful lawfulness of causes and conditions producing results. Basic Western science method. Pay attention, you'll see. If you pay close attention, you'll see in a very refined way that there are no accidents in life. We're not a victim of unforeseen conditions. If we look carefully, we see. Of course, there are many causes and conditions that are in play that we don't see. We're not paying that careful attention. Some karmic actions don't give their result for years, if not lifetimes. Nevertheless, we're not victims of random events, and neither are we omnipotent, able to and entitled to having our wishes fulfilled. But depending on the wisdom in the, in the heart, the compassion in the heart, and the conditions in which we live, in which we operate, we, through our intention, through our actions, co-create the future. We plant seeds now, we harvest later. That's not really that hard to understand. We see it in across the spectrum of our life's activities, whether it's education or family choices or career choices. We see what we do now has a tremendous conditioning effect on what comes later. So too with the quality of mind, the seeds that we plant in the mind. Now, there's one teaching of the Law of Karma, which is a little counterintuitive that I want to mention. Ignorance of the Law of Karma is no excuse. Now, what does that mean? It means if you, know, if you don't know that something is unskillful, doing something, saying something is unskillful, if you don't know, you don't know, and you do it, the karmic consequence of that is greater than if you know it's wrong and you do it anyway. Okay, did you get that? You know, if you know something's wrong and you say, well, I'm going to do it anyway, and you do it, there's karmic consequence. If you don't know that it's wrong and you do it, the consequences are greater. Why is that? Think about it. You don't know something is unskillful, unaware. So when you think, when the thought arises in the mind, I think I'll do this, I'll say this, I'll do that, and you have no second thoughts, you have no doubt, you do it with a lot of vigor, a lot of interest, a lot of energy, with a lot of joy, all of which are compounding the harmfulness of the ignorance in the first place. So the karmic result is going to be tremendous. On the other hand, you know something's not nice to say, you know something's a little unskillful to do, and you just kind of get away with it because nobody's looking, <laughs> but you're looking. You can fool everybody except yourself, and your mind knows, and it has regret, and it has a lot of second thoughts, and you do it hesitatingly, and you have a little doubt, and you kind of wish it didn't happen, and you kind of make amends, and you apologize, and you do this, and you confess, and you, you try to, you know, everything you do mitigates the intention to cause the harm. It's actually to better, in this sense, when you have a lot of second thoughts, a lot of doubt, a lot of hesitation, you don't get much joy out of it because you know you're doing something wrong anyway, or something harmful to others. And, and, and. Conscience 
and your sense of personal shame, as Kamala spoke about the other night, the Hiri Otapa, save you from creating more unwholesome karma. But you know, we hate that little voice of conscience just kind of telling us, be careful now. You know, you're really angry. Be careful what you say, because if you just kind of vent, well, it might feel good for a second, but you'll regret it later. Okay, listen to that voice of conscience. It's a voice of wisdom. It's not just your parents. It's not just the law. It's not God. It's your own understanding that's, that's trying to guide your behavior. So this law of karma is kind of a foundation and having an, an accurate understanding of the law of karma is a foundation upon which we enter the path of practice. Knowing full well that all wholesome actions result in pleasantness pleasant states of mind, pleasant states of body, and you're more likely to want to enjoy, have a sense of well-being, and continue practice, if that's the case. Okay, so that's the first right view in the development of wisdom. The next section of right view is all about the Four Noble Truths. Anybody who's ever heard the teachings of the Buddha has heard about the Four Noble Truths. But I heard about them for 10 years, and I still couldn't tell you what they were. Do you know? First Noble Truth, Second Noble Truth, Third Noble Truth, Fourth Noble Truth. The interesting thing about the spread of the teachings of the Dharma from India, where the Buddha lived, to Tibet, where it met the Bon religion, to China, where it met Confucianism, to Japan, Korea, where it met the local indigenous shaman and shamanistic uh, spiritual traditions, down into Thailand, Burma, Laos, Cambodia, Vietnam, Sri Lanka. The interesting thing even now, 25, 2600 years later, even though a Thai Ajahn and a Burmese Sayadaw and a Tibetan Lama and a Korean Zen master don't look, act, speak, anything alike, they all have the same understanding of the Four Noble Truths. There's a story about Deepama, you know, the woman that we, the Indian woman that we've spoken about, who was just an extraordinary yogi, yogini. She came to the States a few times and she would stay at the meditation center in Massachusetts and do some teaching and just be around. And one time, I don't remember the circumstances, but there was a guest speaker. Uh, often during the three-month course we would have guest speakers. You know, sometimes uh, uh, Son Sanim, the Korean Zen master, would come. Sometimes there was a Dzogchen master that came a few times. And it was just, they'd come and give a talk. Well, Deepama was, you know, she was kind of a uh, peasant, Indian peasant that didn't really, didn't know anything about Korean Zen masters or Tibetan lamas or anything. But she was listening to one of them talk. And it was being translated for her. And they were giving a talk, you know, and about, you know, somewhere in the middle of the talk, she turns to her translator and says, that person's a Buddhist. Why? Because there is a foundation of common understanding that all Buddhist practitioners recognize and understand, and it's the Four Noble Truths. I'm going to do a quick survey of the Four Noble Truths for you. First Noble Truth is the truth of dukkha. Now we all know what dukkha is, kind of. It's pain, physical pain. When you have a toothache, that's dukkha. Kaika dukkha, body dukkha. Toothache, headache, backache, any other kind of physical pain. Pretty obvious, right? We don't have to be convinced that there's 
dukkha in this human life. This also means mental or emotional pain. You know, the pain of fear, stress, loneliness, depression, anxiety, jealousy, envy. Well, there's lots of emotional, mental pain that is also very, very obvious. And we all experience all of it, all of them, at some time or other in our life. Sometimes more, sometimes less, sometimes we have our favorites or least favorites. <laughs> it's no secret. It's no secret that there is, and we all experience, emotional pain. In fact, the physical and the emotional pain is so obvious in a human life. We call it dukkha dukkha. It's the obvious dukkha. It's real, tangible, unpleasantness of body and unpleasantness of mind. That's the first meaning of dukkha. The second meaning of dukkha is, has to do with the fact that everything changes. And so, while now many of us are living a pretty good life, we have good enough health to be here, we have good enough financial resources, or some, to kind of, well, we're in the West, and we're able to do a retreat, we have some discretionary time, conditions are, well, pretty good, good enough. But just on the periphery of our understanding, and for some of you it's right in the middle of your view rather than on the periphery, is this insecurity. It might not last. We might not have a job when we get back. Our health could be, uh, we could be a dream. <laughs> we could get a diagnosis at any day that is going to change our life. It's going to change our view of life. Uh, we don't have to look far back or probably forward to see that whatever financial security you think you have, you don't, or you may not. And all of the sources of our happiness and security and contentment and safety are vulnerable to change outside of our control. And that fear and that anxiety and that vulnerability is just on the periphery of our vision. And sometimes it's in full view a lot. It's not your fault that you don't feel secure. This is the way it is. Everyone feels this insecurity, no matter how much you got, no matter how many vitamins and how much yoga and how many marathons you've run, your body is still subject to, well, surprise. It should be no surprise. No matter what diagnosis we get or when we get it, it should not come as a surprise. We know from the very beginning where we're headed. It's just a matter of time. Okay. Wow, you know, when we really kind of grok it, you know, you kind of grok this, this vulnerability, this insecurity that we, well, can't escape. When we really grok it, we get it. This is not very satisfactory. This, this is just not satisfactory. This is no way to live, and yet we have to. This is dukkha. The unsatisfactoriness of this kind of insecurity and vulnerability is dukkha. It's not immediate pain, but it's the vulnerability to changing conditions that bring about the emotional and the physical pain or unpleasantness. As if those two weren't enough, there's a third kind of arena of dukkha. Just, just so, you know, the Buddha is comprehensive. And this third kind of arena of dukkha has two, two sides. There's the macro view and the micro view. Which would you like to hear about first? <laughs> okay. Well, the macro view is we're born. Painful process sometimes. And our parents doing the best they can. And other caregivers, 
that they can entice into assisting, take care of us. And they feed us, they bathe us, they clean us up after we poop and burp all over them, and they educate us, they coo us, they love us, they do everything they can to keep us happy. Because if we're not happy, they're not happy. <laughs> okay? Don't we know? Okay. And then, and they got to do that for, you know, they do it till you get through the terrible twos or more, and then they, then they start you know, kind of enlisting your siblings, your grandparents, your neighbors, teachers, anybody, daycare people, whatever, to help with the kind of uh, conditioning process. And time goes on, years go by, pretty soon you're in school, and the teacher's got the responsibility. And then the law enforcement people got their part. And it's just like, you know, everybody's, everybody's in the training process. Because if you start acting out, everybody suffers. And they don't want you to. And so, OK, somewhere around your early teens, you start to get the message. <laughs> You've got to take care of yourself. We just got to take care of ourselves. We got to feed ourselves. We got to bathe ourselves. We got to groom ourselves. We got to educate ourselves. We got to get a job. Got to get a job. You got to you got to deal with other people in the family, other people in the school, at work. You got to take care of yourself. And so, reluctantly, we take on and begin to shoulder the burden of taking care of ourselves. Now, in our adult years, we're used to it. Every day, how many hours a day do you spend? Well, grooming, dressing bathing, earning money to get food, going through the process of preparing the food, eating the food, taking care of the dishes that you clean, going to the bathroom to take care of the, what happens to the body when you eat too much food, and exercising, and just, it's like, okay, and you got to do it every day. <laughs> you, can't, you can't get anybody to do it for you. <laughs> you got to take care of yourself, and you got to take care of this body, because, you know, if you just don't take care of it, imagine. You don't brush your teeth, you don't wash for a month. Duka duka. <laughs> right? No choice. You have to do it. It's your responsibility. It's an obligation. You don't do it, get locked up one way or another. <laughs> and that's duka. The body is the easy part. We have this mind. We also have to take care of this mind. Because we have to keep it entertained, we have to keep it distracted, we got to keep it happy, we got to keep it busy, we got to keep it kind of kind of going. Because if you don't, it's just like being on a retreat for life. <laughs> no distraction, no fun, no nothing. It's just like deal with it. Ouch! You know, is it? Uh, it's pretty obvious. Wow! This mind and this body are tremendous burden. We've got to take care of it. In fact, it takes everything you do in life to take care of this body and mind. And you cannot get anybody to do it for you. We, we entice our partners into kind of taking care of some parts occasionally. <laughs> we get our boss to do a little bit sometimes, but you know, it's like mostly we got it. It's ours. Good luck. Take care. Every day. And we have to do this every day for one, two, three, four, five, six, some of us seven, maybe even eight, decades. At the end of which, <laughs> we laugh because it's so, it's, so, it's like, oh my God. You know, you, somebody puts your best clothes on you, puts you in a box, and dumps you in a hole in the ground. <laughs> Now, you invested all this time, all this money, all this knowledge, enticing everybody in your life to help support you. Some would say, that's a bad investment. <laughs> I, I mean, it's just in a box in a hole of ground, rotting away, feeding the, the trees that are growing nearby. That's it. Now, if all we're doing is carrying this body and mind to the grave, with as much pleasant distraction as we can manage, we are wasting our time. Because we have the opportunity 
to use this body and use this mind to free ourselves from this dukkha. That's the teachings of the Buddha. We can learn to free the mind from this dukkha. But that's the macro view. Micro view is we have these six sense doors. Eyes, ears, nose, tongue, body, mind. From the time you're born, from the time before you're born, they are constantly being stimulated. Constant. Constant stimulation of the body. Always feeling something. Constant stimulation of sounds. Even if you put on those sound counseling, sound canceling headphones, you still hear. There's plenty to hear. You go in a deprivation, uh, sensory deprivation tank room, you know, floating device. Ah, oh yeah, right. And you hear yourself. You hear the energy of your own nervous system. You can't escape it. Same with your eyes. If they're open, they're seeing. Close your eyes, you, you still see. You still imagine things that you've seen before. And the mind. Can you shut the mind off? <laughs> Once you put the ideas and thoughts of the future and the past in the mind, uh, they just keep rolling on forever. And all six sense doors are being stimulated all the time. You cannot escape it. That is oppressive. When you, if you can really open to what that, what, what that is, that is just oppressive. Just impacting, impinging on the mind constantly from before birth to death. And even to go to sleep is no relief. Is it any wonder, really, that people drink themselves silly, drug themselves out of their minds, race around in a distracted, because otherwise you sit still and pay attention and this is what you're going to discover. Ouch. This is dukkha. This is what the Buddha was pointing to. He said, because this is so painful, there's so much insecurity, there's so much vulnerability and oppression, we hide from it. We do everything we can to deny, minimize, avoid, distract ourselves from acknowledging this. Practice is to investigate and to understand the truth of dukkha. Not hard to do. Just sit still, pay attention. You will see physical dukkha really quick. And you'll see mental dukkha just as quick. Investigating is really easy. Just pay attention. But the depth of dukkha to be discovered takes a piercing, penetrating clarity of mind to get it, to really get to the bottom of dukkha, to really understand, as I just kind of laid out conceptually, but to recognize this in your own existence. The depth of dukkha takes an unwavering continuity of attention to the way things are as experienced in this body and mind. And then you'll see. Now, we've all been experiencing, recognizing, investigating, and confirming the truth of dukkha during this retreat. And a lot of us have spent a lot of time trying to explain it. Why? Why does it have to be this way? Can I be otherwise? Can I? Well, the Buddha asked that question too. Why? What's the, what's the cause of this dukkha? Second noble truth is the cause of this dukkha is craving. It's because of craving. It's because of clinging. It's because of holding on. It's because of attachment. It's because of being identified with this body, identified with the mind, hanging on to, clinging to, well, pleasant experiences. We want pleasant experiences. Pleasant physical, mental, emotional, psychic, odors, sights. As much pleasantness as we can get. And yet, we can't get enough. We're always looking for more. Even, even as we're here, 
enjoying the luxury of time off, good food, somebody else making it for you. Don't even have to answer the phone. You're, you're not, it's like, it's great. Still, we've all been fantasizing paradise elsewhere. Next week, next place, next person, next retreat, next book, next thing, whatever. Not satisfied yet. Constantly thirsting, as the Buddha pointed out, for more pleasant experience. And to get those pleasant experiences, we've got to work, we've got to cajole, we've got to connive, connive, strive, strategize, scheme, whatnot, get, hang on, do. That's exhausting. <laughs> more dukkha. To try to get away from dukkha. Not only that, we want to do it forever. <laughs> you know? I mean, why, why else were we caught in so much planning mind during this retreat? Because it isn't good enough now. We're not totally content now. We can't be at ease with the way things are now. So we're, we've, we've got this idea. You know, if I just do this and just do that, and you know, next retreat is going to be better. Or next job, or next relationship, or next career, or ne whatever, whatever. Tomorrow, at least, is going to be better. We've laid down the tracks in our minds for s more futures than we can ever live out. Imagine if you had to do everything that you've thought about doing and planned doing. <laughs> How many lifetimes would that take? Right? And all the time you were living out those lifetimes, you'd be making plans for more. That's called samsara. That's what we've been doing. Living out our fantasies of fulfillment. Seeking happiness in all the wrong places. Going on and on and on and on and on. And as the Buddha said, long enough to be totally fed up with the whole process. But we haven't paid attention. We keep believing it's just around the corner. Satisfaction is just around the corner. Fulfillment, completion, peace, happiness, contentment. This craving the Buddha said, is to be abandoned, to be let go, to just starve the craving. Don't satisfy it. Satisfying your craving is like drinking salt water to satisfy thirst. We think we're going to be satisfied. And you know, when you get that new car, we're satisfied till the first dent. You get that new set of clothes, how long does the enjoyment last, really? You know, I mean, we go buy things, we go eat things. We want a good meal? Great, go get the good meal. How long does it last? Well, before you get up from the table, you're already too full, so it didn't last very long. The satisfaction we seek is so brief, we hardly recognize it, even if we're mindful. So, craving is to be abandoned. The third noble truth, luckily, is the Buddha's realization that it is possible to stop craving. And if we stop craving, dukkha comes to an end. All that dukkha I talked about can come to an end if craving is abandoned. Okay, now often when you hear the third noble truth spoken about, it's spoken about in terms of, well, liberation, enlightenment, nibbana, whatever. I mean, things that sound like, well, far away in time and space and possibility, just like out there. But actually, everything we've been doing here this past week has been touching on and confirming the third noble truth. End of craving brings end of dukkha. Let me show you how. Did you find yourself, well, of course you did. Did you find yourself lost in wandering mind? And when you come to, you know, in, or when awareness kind of grabs you and saves you from wandering endlessly in that lost wandering mind, did you, did you notice wh what you'd actually been hanging on to? 
some fantasies, some memories, some stories, some just ridiculous stuff. I mean, stuff that if you knew you were thinking about, you'd be ashamed, you'd be bored, you'd be like, come on, <laughs> give me a break. I mean, it's just like, I've been wasting my time with that. Well, you know, after I, I first started um, Dharma practice, it was a few years after university. When I went to university, it was back in the days of slide rules. I was an engineer, studying engineering. No handheld computers, all slide rules. A lot of math. Did a lot of math courses. So I was good at doing a lot of math in the head. Multiplying, dividing, all, all kinds of formulas. And, and using slide rule. So, of course, that's what I trained my mind to do. So I go to retreat. Go to retreat, my mind wanders off. When I come to, you know what I'm doing? Multiplying out four and five digit numbers in my head. <laughs> you know, and I come to and I, I say, wait a minute, do I need to be doing this now? <laughs> I mean, really. <laughs> you know, thankfully, I could notice it and let go. Just by having the awareness of what we're doing unconsciously, we can intentionally let go. Now, you know what that feels like? You're kind of caught up in some drama until you, you notice it and say, oh. Relief. Right? You let go, you have a moment of relief. That is a dukkha free zone. It's brief, but it is real because the hanging on comes to an end. End of craving, end of that form of dukkha. Okay. However, we notice another kind of dukkha. I'm sure you notice this during the retreat. The mind obsessing. You know, it gets some bone, it starts chewing on it, and you get sad and you just keep chewing on that sad bone or you get anxious and you keep chewing on that anxiety bone or you keep get depressed and you get chewing on that you get a fear or what, whatever your particular brand of obsession is this week I'm sure you've noticed and the mind when it is obsessing is just insufferable it's like you'd like to be able to say oh I don't need to be doing this now put it aside you can say that but it keeps happening. <laughs> it's like that kind of obsessing is not uh, is not susceptible to your intention not to do it. You can intend not to be angry, and you're still angry. You can intend not to be lonely, and you still are. You can intend not to be fearful, and it still obsesses. So intention is not strong enough to stop the, the dukkha of obsessing. For that, we need to develop continuity of mindfulness. When we develop a continuity of mindfulness, whether it's on the chosen object, the breath, or random objects as they appear predominantly in the mind, if you can establish a continuity of being aware of each moment as it appears, there's no room in the mind for obsessing to take hold and proliferate. This is how we put aside the dukkha of obsessing, by establishing the continuity of mindfulness, whether it's metta, or the breath, or random objects, or any other object that is attended to, or when the mindfulness is established with some continuity. When you're able to establish, or when the mindfulness is established in this way, obsessing comes to an end. Dukkha free zone. When you put the hindrances aside, we've all had tastes of it this week. There's been times where you sit down, nothing is bugging you. You're just there. You're just thunk. Might be brief, but notice it because that's the direction we're headed. The mind not obsessing, and things are just, well, okay. What's wrong with that? No dukkha there. Okay. There's another way that we experience the end of dukkha in our practice here. We didn't speak about it to 
much in this retreat. We mentioned equanimity, but in the course of our practice, slowly we learn to have a more balanced mind in relationship to everything we experience. Even now, when, when, when the first flicker of pain comes in the body while you're sitting, we don't have such a hysterical reaction. It's like, oh yeah, this is familiar. Okay, yep, I know it's going to be 10 minutes or 20 minutes before it gets unbearable. So you just kind of, okay, you just put up with it. You don't fall into the hysterical reactive state of mind. Slowly, equanimity is developing. In time, equanimity becomes strong. It becomes noticeable. It becomes the predominant wholesome factor of mind, and we don't get caught in reactivity. We don't get caught in reactivity of attachment or aversion to the pleasant and unpleasant experiences. We don't get caught in passivity towards what's happening either. We stay engaged. We stay in touch with, but not entangled in, what is arising. This state of equanimity is exquisite because no suffering. The mind is very subtle, the body is very light, things are going by. You're seeing them, but you're not reacting to them. You're not entangled in them. <sighs> what a relief. We've all had tastes of that. We've seen gradual development of it. And in time, it becomes noticeable, it becomes pervasive, it becomes really strong and enduring. And then life goes on without getting caught in a lot of, well, clinging. Clinging and aversion, craving, they're the same. We're not hanging on or pushing away from anything. The mind is at ease. The mind is willing to be there for whatever happens. Fully confident that it can bear with, open to, bear with, be with, and understand everything. And at this point in practice, when equanimity is really developed, in itself is quite a dukkha-free quality of mind, we start to develop, or we, we, we not really start, but we mature our understanding of what are called the three characteristics. This is Vipassana. The three characteristics are that everything that arises is impermanent. Everything arises, passes away. Now, I, you, we know that. <laughs> we know the seasons change. We know that a new election is going to bring in another crop of <laughs> <laughs> politicians. And, you know, we, we know change happens. But this is seeing change on a moment-to-moment -moment basis of everything in the body and the mind and the environment. Okay, when we see clearly, when we understand really, everything that arises passes away. Now imagine, the mind is really clear, it's bright, it's continuously seeing everything that arises and has the understanding, this that has arisen is passing away. It arises and passes away quickly, instantly. And you see that, you know that. The mind rests in the knowledge, this is impermanent, this is impermanent, this is impermanent. What is going to cause the mind to reach out and hold on? Nothing. Because the understanding is there that there is nothing going to last. Whatever you grab and hang on to, cling to, isn't going to last for one split second. And the mind knows that. It doesn't reach for anything. It doesn't have to let go. It doesn't even reach for because it sees that it's gone. It's impermanent. It doesn't last. This knowledge of impermanence at this level of observation in the mind is freeing. Because the mind isn't reaching for anything that arises, no matter how pleasant, no matter how unpleasant, no matter how novel, no matter how familiar. Physical, mental, pleasant, unpleasant, nothing. It's all seen as impermanent. This knowledge is the purification of delusion. We purify the mind of delusion because we see it clearly. 
The second insight knowledge that we gain when the mind is very equanimous is the knowledge of dukkha. Now you remember what I said about dukkha? Pain, insecurity, vulnerability, oppressive. When the insight into dukkha arises and matures in the mind, the mind knows, wisdom knows, this that has arisen has the characteristic of dukkha. It's either painful, or it's unstable, or it's oppressive. And the mind knows that. Wisdom knows this about every experience that arises. And again, with that knowledge, the mind doesn't reach for to hold on to anything. Because it knows it's painful. We don't reach for painful things. You don't grab something that's going to be painful, that's hot, burning coal. You don't grab for things that you know are unstable and aren't going to be there in the next moment. You don't hang on to things that are oppressive. We shun them. Not out of aversion, we just don't go there. And so when the mind knows, the, or through the insight into dukkha, knows the dukkha characteristic of all experience that arises, it doesn't reach for anything. The mind stays way back here, not reaching for any experience, aware of everything, sees everything, and not attached to anything. We're not withdrawing from life staying fully in touch with everything life has to offer, but not entangling the mind in it by grasping it. Again, this understanding provides a tremendous uh, experience of being free of dukkha. The third characteristic is the what's called the anatta characteristic. It is the understanding that whatever has arisen in the body and the mind is insubstantial. It's just an appearance in the mind due to causes and conditions, and that appearance has no inherent substance. There's nothing to it. We can get a sense of what this is pointing to when we see a rainbow. Now, we all know what rainbows look like. It's a colorful appearance in the sky due to causes and conditions, very specific causes and conditions. Moisture, sunlight, being viewed from a certain angle, gives rise to the appearance of a rainbow. And yet we know very well that there's nothing there. You cannot grab that rainbow, stick it in a bottle, and send it to me in Hawaii. Cannot. And we know that. So we don't even try to reach for that rainbow. We enjoy the appearance of it knowing full well that there's nothing there, right? What? Well, you can take a picture of it. That's just a picture. Okay. But anyway, the rainbow. <laughs> yeah, I've seen some nice pictures of rainbow. <laughs> the, the understanding of the anatta characteristic is that understanding that everything that appears in the mind, in the body, is as substanceless as a rainbow. It's a colorful appearance due to causes and conditions, but there's nothing there. When you know there's nothing there, it's just a colorful appearance, you don't reach for it. You don't reach for the rainbow, and the mind that understands the anatta characteristic doesn't reach for anything that appears in the mind. It enjoys the appearances. It sees them. It understands them. Fully knowledgeable, fully aware, but not attached to and holding on to anything. This too, no clinging, no craving, no, no attachment, no identification, no dukkha. These are the insights to be developed through the continuity of awareness, the knowledge of all appearances, the characteristics of all appearances are these three, impermanent, dukkha, and substanceless, let's say. That's how continuity of mindfulness leads to insight. And the insight leads to the end of craving. The end of craving leads to or conditions the end of, uh, the end of dukkha, the end of suffering. However, that's not the end. There's one further realization of the end of dukkha. 
when the mind is mature, resting in equanimity, fully understanding the three characteristics of impermanence, dukkha, or anatta, the substanceless nature characteristic of all phenomena, the mind is not reaching for anything. The mind is totally at ease with whatever appears. It is then, and then only, that the mind can realize the unconditioned, Nibbana. Nibbana is a reality, just like physical is a reality. Mind is a reality. Mental states, reality. Nibbana is a reality. It can be known. It can be realized through the mind that is balanced in understanding the characteristic of all phenomena. What it means is the mind lets go of all known things and realizes that which is not just unknown, but has no characteristic. And the mind can know that. The mind can realize that. And the, 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 the significance of realizing the unconditioned is that it uproots defilements from the mind. It's not just suppressing them with mindfulness or seeing through them with insight. It's taking the roots out of the mind so that those defilements no longer appear in the mind hereafter in future wanderings in samsara. That's the end of suffering. That is the end. When there's no seeds in the mind to give rise to further dukkha, that's freedom from suffering. That's liberation. The liberating mind. And the three trainings of the Noble Eightfold Path, the fourth noble truth, the three trainings of sila, purifying our speech and behavior of transgressive defilements, giving rise to happiness of harmony, living in harmony, the development of a concentration or the purification of the mind, purifying the mind of the obsessive defilements, giving rise to the happiness of tranquility or seclusion, and wisdom, purification of our understanding, removes the latent defilements, giving rise to the happiness of peace. Everything we have been doing for these six, seven days of the retreat has been developing the Noble Eightfold Path. Getting close to, touching, experiencing, realizing for ourselves the space of a dukkha-free mind in little glimpses. When we're practicing like this, there's nothing more you can do to develop the Eightfold Path. You can't read a book and do it any better. You don't have to... It's by paying attention, being mindful of moment to moment, this is the fulfillment of the path. And as we continue in this practice, a little or a lot, the path gets developed, and the result is inevitable if we fulfill the causes and the conditions, the results have to happen. And the conditions that we can fulfill is to investigate dukkha, to abandon craving, to realize nirvana or realize the unconditioned, and to develop the path. That's what we can do. Those are the conditions that we can cultivate, and the result is inevitable. Liberation. The Buddha said of the goal of the spiritual life, as we're living it here, that the goal of the spiritual life is like the heartwood of a tree, when he said, this holy life is led not for gain and abundance of anything, not for honor, not for fame. It's not for virtue, 
It's not for concentration. It's not for even knowledge and vision. But it is for the unshakable release of the mind. This is the essence of the holy life. It is the heartwood and the end of the holy life. The unshakable release of the mind. Sit for a moment and let these words 